Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country and around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel, and I'm just happy again to be able to share with you various thoughts on different timely and important critical issues. Uh, The issue we're going to address today on All Rise, because if we address these issues with libertarian approaches, we will all rise together. And the issue is going to be make the system work, and how better to do that than being a criminal defense attorney. So we're going to get into all of that sort of thing. Uh, with my guest, who is a fellow, a longtime friend of mine named Alan Cravaro. Uh, he was for a long time in the public defender's office, uh, is a man of, of great, great standing and, and is a writer. He, he writes books uh, on policy and, and reliability uh, from, the, from the standpoint of making the system work. What do we mean by that? Well, I tell you, We have obligations as citizens. We certainly have benefits, but some of our obligations, I believe, as citizens are, yes, to to not only be a voter, but to be an educated voter. It's our obligation to research the issues, research the candidates, and be an intelligent voter, where you don't just go in and say, oh, gee, I like the name white instead of the word green or whatever, uh, to, to be an intelligent voter. Also to serve on juries, and we'll talk about that with a little bit, my guest with Alan Cravaro, because that is an enormously important segment where the public can control government and control outcomes just by civilian oversight of government really important. Another is to pay our taxes. Now, I'm a libertarian. I think that our taxes are too high, but that's a separate subject. But the fourth one that I believe is to make the system work. And and we're all in a position at one time or another to do that. Uh, I'm going to tell you a short, very, maybe not real important example. I was on a speaking tour in Columbia University about a, maybe six, nine months ago, and uh, I found that it was very close to Grant's tomb. So I went over to Grant's tomb, and I hadn't been there in decades, looked inside. It was just fantastic, very, very uplifting from a national standpoint. But on the outside, it was surrounded by about 270 degrees of a bench that was bright colored tiles, beautifully done, very artistically done, but it was covered with weeds. This is a national monument, and the sign for the national monument was down on the ground on its side, and the weeds were growing up through the bench. So I took a few pictures, and then when I got home, I forwarded those pictures with a letter to the head of the National Park Service saying, wait a minute, not on my watch. This is not going to happen. Quoting Bob Dylan also, by the way, saying, you're either busy being born or busy dying. And I think not only that's true with people, it's true with countries. So this will not be allowed to happen for our national gems. About three weeks later, I got a letter back from the 
head of the National Park Service saying, you're right, this was not a question of money. We've spoken with the steward there and we're going to clean this place up. So I sent another friend from Columbia University over there who took some pictures. Now the sign is up and the weeds are gone. So, I mean, this is just something that we all as citizens of our country can do to help make our system work, keep our country great. So the classic example from my standpoint in making the system work is performed by a a, a criminal defense attorney in a criminal lawsuit. And it is not the job, and I'm sure Alan Cravaro will, will flat out agree with this, it's not the job of the criminal defense attorney to prove that his or her client is innocent. Absolutely not. Biting off something you do not want to get close to. It's not their job to show that their client is not guilty. Also not the deal. The job of the criminal defense attorney is, in fact, to require the prosecutor to submit enough admissible evidence to convince neutral jury of 12 people beyond a doubt based upon reason of the guilt of your client. And if, in fact, you make them do that, make them put through through those legal hoops, you're making the system work. You've been successful. And these are things that we should apply at all times. It's in our Constitution. It's in our Constitution that you can now be appointed an attorney. But used to be before, uh, what was it, Gideon versus Wainwright, that, that you could not have an attorney appointed for you. Now you can, even if you can't afford it. So that's an important thing. We need Miranda. We need to have various protections uh, to, to require the government to, to adhere to the Constitution. And this, the people that make it be adhering are the knights in shining armor in a lot of ways, the ones that make the prosecutors present that, keep them within bounds, and, and make that system work. One of them that just does it enormously is a fellow, again, by the name of Alan Cravaro, C-R-I-V-A-R-O. I've known him for a long time. Uh, first of all, I think we met Alan uh, uh, in court, but also at our Inn of Court, which is a, a professional organization that focuses on ethics in our profession, uh, camaraderie and education. And uh, Alan, welcome to the show. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray, because the Libertarian Way is to do what you do, namely enforce the Constitution, enforce our rights uh, when people are really really susceptible and vulnerable, that is, when the state of California or the United States of America versus Jim Gray, you'd stand up and say, wow, it's the whole United States of America against me. My God, what can I do? Well, what we can do is have a criminal defense attorney that is solid up on the law, and one of those is Alan Cravaro. Alan, welcome. Thank you for being with us here on All Rise. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to join you today. Tell us a little bit about your background, Alan. Where were you raised? Uh, where'd you go to school? How did you become uh, that knight, as I called you, uh, on a bulwark of our constitutional rights in the criminal justice system? Tell, a little, tell us a little bit about Alan Cravaro. Jim, I was raised in uh, Long Beach, California, and my background really is, is my father was from the Midwest, fought in World War II, um, became a doctor at the University of Iowa, and then uh, married my mother, met her from Naples, Italy. So she is a uh, an immigrant who became an American citizen. They had me at the last uh, year in medical school, and one month later we were in Long Beach, California, when my father was doing his residency. So I spent my entire uh education up through high school uh, in Long Beach, California. From there, I received my uh, Bachelor of Arts at University of Southern California. And interestingly enough, I really wanted to 
be a college professor. Uh, in those days, however, my uh, father and my godfather felt uh, that uh, professions is what I should be in, so they suggested law, and I went back to law school at Creighton University, the Amundsen Law Center, a Jesuit school in Omaha, Nebraska. It was there that I really found myself, that I really took up the interest in criminal defense and the Constitution. During my freshman year, in the summer, I took a, a class with one of my favorite professors who taught. Uh, constitutional law, and that was crim, crim pro, criminal procedure, and criminal law. And during that time, that summer, that intense summer school session, uh, the professor told me, Alan, the difference what a criminal defense lawyer is, imagine being the person that stands between the, the accused, the defendant, and the state. That is the role that the criminal defense lawyer has, and it is one of the most important roles that one could have. I learned about the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment that summer, and I got a job shortly thereafter with a firm um, with the former district attorney of that county, uh, Douglas County in Omaha, Nebraska, and we did some criminal law, and I wrote my first brief, my first suppression brief, and I have been doing it ever since. Um, it was something that I was drawn to. I really, really love writing about the Constitution, between, particularly the criminal rights. Um, they are so important. As I have gotten older now, and I am in my 35th year of practice, I see it more clearly than ever before, the beauty of what we have. Um, I, I get a chance to lecture about it frequently, and our First Amendment, our Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, tremendous with our 14th Amendment. They really make the United States system so much different than the rest of the world. Um, these are so, so important. So I enjoy uh, with my friends and my judges that I know in discussing this issue. So from there I went on. I came back to California with my family. I was married by then, still am married to the same woman. And it drew me to Orange County, which was growing at that time, uh, just a little bit for those of uh, you that don't know it, that's uh, south of Los Angeles County. And it was about 10 miles from where I was raised. We settled out here. I got a job in the Orange County Public Defender's Office, uh, and I was there for 28 years. I retired from there in 2011, and I have been in private practice here in Newport Beach doing criminal and juvenile trials and appeals since then. So consistently, but I left the government work after 28 years, but I still have a lot of friends. And for since 1992, it's been my pleasure with another uh, author, a former district attorney, to write three chapters in California criminal law procedure and practice. So we, I write about the client interview, law office management, and selected pretrial motions and trial motion. So that's a little bit of my background. I've had the pleasure of arguing in our courts of appeal and our California Supreme Court. So professionally, that's my practice. And behind the scenes, I also am very active with our local bar and other legal organizations because I do believe that an attorney's responsibility is supporting our court system and making it better all the time. So I do that too. So in a nutshell, that's kind of, kind of a little bit about my background, and I think one of the key things in knowing me was because my mother was a teenager raised under fascism, she 
really imparted to me what it was like growing up under that system. So I could see as a boy and a teenager comparing the terrible experiences she suffered during the war and pre-war as opposed to the beauty of the freedom that she had here in the United States. So it was something she truly imparted to me that it helps me understand the people that I represent. As a, as a former public defender, we and in Southern California, we represent individuals from many different cultures, uh, many different backgrounds. And having an immigrant mother myself made me attuned to that, um, that this is a great melting pot that we do live in, yet the, the rights and guarantees under our Constitution put us all or should put us all on equal footing. So that's a, that's a thumbnail about myself. Alan, thank you. I, I'm going to ask you and our listeners uh, uh, probably the most general question I could ask, which is, what's the most important thing in life? Which is a pretty general question. So I will give you at least my answer, and that is gratification. The world will be a slightly better place because Alan Gravaro, Jim Gray, or any of the rest of us were on it. And I'm sure that you get a great deal of gratification uh, in what you have just been talking about, enforcing the rules of our Constitution, the procedures, the, the substance, standing up for people that cannot defend themselves. Uh, and you've just got to feel really good about that. Then you get into another really important thing I thought you said, which is immigrants largely appreciate the United States and our liberties more than we who were born here because they have seen it, they've compared it, they've run away from more totalitarian governments, they've come here and they appreciate it, but uh, many of us take it for granted and shame on us because it's our country and if it isn't working it's our responsibility and you go back to Thomas Jefferson who said it's the innate situation where government tends to increase its power at the expense of us and the civil liberties. I have seen that happen, and I'm going to ask you some questions on this, Alan Cravaro, uh, because I've looked at our policy of drug prohibition and actively have been speaking against it for since 1992. And I've written a book called Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It, a judicial indictment of the war on drugs published by Temple University Press. And I have a whole chapter of the erosion of our civil liberties because of the war on drugs. Because yes, I, I hate to say it, but judges are human also. And there's just that tendency, oh, you know, it it used to be that a police officer, if they were going to arrest you, couldn't go into the trunk of your car. But gosh, there are a lot of drugs there. And well, let's just erode it a little bit. Let's let's allow a police officer, as he says the right words, to be able to go in the trunk because that way they can keep this uh, heroin off the streets or whatever. Have you seen that also with regard to our policy of drug prohibition, Alan Cravaro, our war on drugs, seeing how our liberties are eroded, even though we don't make any progress as to drug prohibition? But, but that's just what's been happening. Have you seen that occur? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. And, and it really happens in two areas. One is the justifications that a court will accept um, as to why police officers um, may violate the Fourth Amendment. Um, because they weigh it and they believe that confiscating the drugs or keeping the drugs off the street is a higher value than individual privacy. The what's the Fourth Amendment, Alan to... Cravaro? What, what's the Fourth Amendment? A lot of people the won't fourth, even know. The Fourth know. Amendment uh, protects uh, all citizens. Uh, actually, I should say everyone within the jurisdiction of the United States from unreasonable searches and seizures by law enforcement, state actors. 
in, in, in a nutshell. The sure. second area has to do with our legislators, and that is, for political reasons, they kept increasing the sentences to the point where we no longer looked at individuals. And I'm not saying that there aren't individuals who should be incarcerated, but when you use an atomic bomb to kill a gnat, and it's not specific, we end up with life sentences for people that have very small quantities of narcotics and really shouldn't be there. You know, to get us, when we come back, because we just have a few minutes left in this segment, I'd like to talk to you about what the purpose is of the criminal justice system. Because my view is it's not to incarcerate, it's not to punish, but it's to reduce crime. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But before we leave the exclusionary rule, the Fourth Amendment, uh, there was a MAP versus Ohio case that instituted the exclusionary rule, which means that if law enforcement does not carry out its, its actions in accordance with the Constitution, that one thing you could do is to punish them, to hold them up to ridicule, to maybe uh, demote them, and that's just been found not to work. But if you take away the fruits of what they gain there uh, and the, what they find, then, of course, they're not going to want to lose that prosecution, so it'll be much more likely to adhere to the rules. Uh, do you believe in the exclusionary rule, Public Defender Supreme Alan Caravaro? I certainly do. I have seen it over and over uh, produce better police work. There's a constant tension that has been argued for at least 75 years in this country, and that is, is why should the criminal go free because the constable blundered? On the other hand, the other tension for citizens' privacy is simply this, and that is, is that if you deprive law enforcement the use of the fruits when they do violate the Fourth Amendment, um, it tends to make a better police department, and that is exactly what we have seen. They learn from their mistakes. They will respond that way because they want to do a proper job. Um, when I go and talk to police officer groups, when I talk to police officer groups, they are surprised in many ways how respectful a public defender actually is of law enforcement and what they do. We share that in similar. We want to see them enforce laws properly, observe citizens' rights in the same way that they are trained to do. So in many ways, we actually are on the same team. They just don't realize it at the time in court when I'm arguing about what they have done wrong. You're but it's making extremely the system important work, value. Alan. You're just making the system work. We're all a part of law enforcement, judges, prosecutors, criminal defense attorneys. We're going to talk more about the criminal justice system when we come back after these messages. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. 
the Libertarian Party, is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is Judge Jim Gray and our our wonderful guest, uh, former public defendant Alan Carvaro on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Gray, as you heard just a moment ago. You know... What is the purpose of the criminal justice system? Because it's so important that you get into countries that are totalitarian or just, people are arrested at a whim. They don't have the constitution to serve as guidelines and it becomes a government of man instead of a, a government by the rule of law. So when I talk with police officers, I look at them and say, you know, you are social. You're the ultimate social workers in a lot of way, except maybe for judges, because you're required by our whole framework to do the right thing for the right reason every time. And in fact, I'll look at them and say, similarly to if you're a medical doctor where surgery is the last resort, you use other things first and surgery being the last resort. For a police officer, an arrest is a last resort. And that uh, it's important that we carry out the dictates of our constitution and don't abuse our power. In fact, I'll tell you a short story that when I was a former federal prosecutor, I actually caused to be indicted a case brought to me by the FBI for bankruptcy fraud. And I was convinced that this father and mother, uh, husband and wife, had uh, shielded some assets, lied under penalty of perjury, and that they should be held accountable for that. So I pursued that to the grand jury, got an indictment. And then at the arraignment, which is the first appearance in court, I found out that my FBI officer had gone out and arrested these two people, actually at home in front of their children, handcuffed them and took them away. I was horrified that it's required that people are not punished prior to the time, if they do, uh, before they're convicted. And that you only arrest someone if, in fact, they are, number one, a threat of physical violence or a threat to the community, or number two, there's reason to believe that they will not show up for trial. That was not the case with either of those people. It was an abuse of authority, and it was done in my name. And to this day, I am horrified by that. But we are all together trying to get the system to 
work and to promote the criminal justice system's responses and purpose, which is not to arrest, not to incarcerate, not to punish, but to reduce crime. So Alan Cravaro, a public defender, is here, and he has seen various, we call them community courts. Uh, You'll have drug courts where you help people resolve their problems, face their problems, get assistance so that they are not repeat offenders. Uh, You have people with mentally ill, the same thing. So Alan, tell us a little bit about community courts uh, in Orange County. California, where we're from, and of course, spreading around the country. Are they successful? Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, I'm very proud to to tell you about our Orange County Community Court. It is one of four in the nation that is called a teaching court. That is, other states and jurisdictions come to Orange County to learn the procedures and the way that we view restorative justice. Restorative justice means uh, taking a look at the individual and trying to find the reasons in their life that brought them before the court and trying to correct those reasons. Sometimes individuals, it's kind of interesting when you look at it, that the criminal justice system or the penal code, as we call it, those, those laws sometimes are they're, they're all about designed to, to import culpability, that is blame, when an individual does something uh, against society. Many people who have mental illness are the last people um, just because of their psychological or mental makeup that can have blame. They can't cope with it. We are finally recognizing that if we can ameliorate or maybe we can't cure their mental problems, but if we can help them with medication or therapy, um, sometimes their socioeconomic status, help them in that way, we can stop the behavior and show them a different way so that they're not violating the criminal justice system. Um, One of the things that we really are good at is juvenile diversion. In California and across the country now, we're looking at, 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 at juveniles, and I mean people that are under the age of 18, in a much different way. Example, a minor goes in, takes, takes something from a, a local Target store or, or a, a store, um, say it's a CD or a movie. Not too long ago, we used to put them in juvenile hall. We would remove them out of their school, take them away from their family, and you know what we would end up with? We were guaranteed to see that person at age 18 committing adult crimes because we had isolated them and had not shown them a different way or taken a look at why did they do these things. Many studies, particularly from University of California right here at Irvine, are showing that many of our kids that are having these kind of problems and exhibiting these antisocial behaviors come from broken homes. They themselves have mental issues. They may have drug problems. All of these are interrelated, and they manifest themselves in this kind of asocial behavior. Rather than take them out and put them in a juvenile hall, wouldn't it be better to work with them in therapy, to work with their families, to get them back on track, to help them in school so that they can become uh, productive citizens? We have found statistically that the recidivism rate is extremely low when we ameliorate the problems that brought people to the criminal justice system in the first place. Naturally, we all know there's people out there that, for better or for worse, 
they're born, they're going to be that way, and yes, they need to be removed. But, crim- but the community court takes a look at that individual and tries to ameliorate the, the problems to, to get in and to see exactly the factors that are, that are causing this person to violate the law. A great example we have is the homeless court. Many people who are out there on the streets end up having to resort to different types of activities that bring them into contact with law enforcement rather than try to put them in jail and simply uh, deal with them that way. Isn't it better to try to treat if they have a mental illness, if they have an alcohol problem, to try to get them work, to try to get them real housing? Um, These are the type of things um, that really work. In the Veterans Court, I think it it really, most people now are very aware that for those young people, and they're not so young anymore, that served in, uh, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, that have been coming back, they suffer from post traumatic stress disorder. That's simply something that soldiers can get when they see the kind of violence um, that their role calls for. When they come back, because they've been changed, they're suffering from the trauma, it tends to show itself and they become aggressive with their family. They're not able to communicate with their, with their wife or their kids. Um, they may engage in alcohol abuse or substance abuse of narcotics. This sometimes results in in drunk driving or domestic violence cases. And by taking them into it and showing that, yes, they can um, become uh, restored through proper therapy, through proper uh, uh, being uh, observing a a law-abiding lifestyle, at the end, rather than punishing, we are putting a a citizen back um, to where they had started in a lawful way, and it changes their life, and it not only changes the individual, but it is productive for society because the taxpayer is not burdened with that additional expense uh, now or in the future of incarceration, and the damage that someone can do because sometimes in a violent crime people are hurt. So this is a little bit about what community court is about. It's expanding throughout the country, and I urge every one of our listeners to find out about it and support it. Uh, it's so important. Um, well, it's it effective. Is, it's just yes, effective, Alan. incredibly effective. It, I'm proud to say that I was appointed to the municipal court in Orange County, California at the end of 1983, and six months after that, by June of 1984, pretty much had up and running the nation's first drug court, which we had focusing on alcohol-related offenses. So I would, we would screen out, using the probation department, screen out the people that were alcoholics, but we didn't call them that because that's kind of smacked of name-calling. We called them high-risk problem drinkers, but they knew what we meant. And we would screen them out and say, you know, you're not a good candidate for, for probation because uh, you're likely to keep drinking, and then if you do, you're going to drive a car again. But if you show us that you are a good candidate by going into this recovery class, uh, that we will put you on probation. So they would do that. Otherwise, of course, I would tell them that I'll put you in jail for 60 days and suspend your license for six six months, which kind of got their attention. So you kind of weight the equation. But judges can be the ultimate social workers, just like Alan Cravara, you are saying. And I was able, by doing this, to put them into these programs. They would actually have a blood test and then you know, they, they'd eventually the idea of us 
ogre in a black robe, namely a judge telling me, threatening me to put me in jail for 10 or 60 days would wear off. But if you have someone in a white smock with the results of your blood test saying, I'm sorry, Mr. Jones, but your intake of alcohol is your kidney rate is, is showing that you're, you're killing yourself from alcohol or whatever, that gets their attention. I would also tell them that if they even eat rum cake, not really joking, then it's called to my attention because you're not going to induce any form of alcohol. I'm going to put you back in jail. So I would get letters. I, I still have them, Alan, and I'm proud of them. Maybe a stack of an inch and a half of letters from, say, a spouse saying, Dear Judge Gray, I was going to divorce my husband. He'd get drunk. He'd hit me. He'd, he'd be irresponsible with the children. But now that he's off alcohol, you've given me my husband back. You know, thank you. And even the mothers against drunk driving recognized what we're doing. And they were pretty much, before we started doing this, centrally looking at incarceration is the answer, but instead take people off alcohol. Now you're starting to really address that whole purpose. So this is what we're doing. Alan, as you say, it's really easy to bring people into the criminal justice system, particularly minors, and really hard to get them out. They have the stigma, uh, the mentoring process goes badly. So we're, we're reaching into this. We're doing this in Orange County, California. I'm even looking at a book and Alan, you knew Michael Schumacher, who was the head probation officer here. Uh, he and a nice lady named Gwen Kurtz wrote a book called The 8% Solution, Preventing Serious Repeat Juvenile Crime, that they found that about 8% of the juveniles were causing 50% of the damage and crimes. So we started addressing not only that juvenile, but also his or her family to try to keep these crimes from occurring. Because that, of course, is the whole idea. So we can do this. We also know that probably the largest so-called mental health facility in Orange County, Los Angeles County, and probably every other county in the, in the country is the county jail. And we're doing untold damage to these mentally fragile people, spending more resources by keeping them in jail by far than we'd have to spend by addressing their actual problems. So the public defenders would be involved in this sorts of things, would, would, would be a team to try to address whatever problems it would be and help them with it to divert them out of crime. So, Alan, again, thank you for all of that. Can you... Tell us an example, without using a name, of course, of someone that you helped go through one of these community courts and what the results were. You know, excuse me, uh, uh, years ago, uh, I had a juvenile, and, uh, oh, this was a 15-year-old boy, and uh, his parents were, were divorced, and his mother was having drinking problems. And essentially what happened was he actually was going through Newport Beach along the Strand over here, which, for those of you not familiar with it, is a very wealthy part of our community. And he was exposing himself at night to various women. And essentially, a, you know, a public exhibition and draws, have his pants down, they'd scream in his run. Well, unfortunately, or fortunately, the law looks at that as a very serious thing. Uh, as sex offenders, um, 
the community really, um, it's a really big prohibition. When I got a hold of him and we did psychological studies and a work up and all, it turned out that he wasn't beyond redemption at this particular point. After undergoing therapy and a lot of work, work therapy, the kind of being in a halfway house, working with his mother, reestablishing contact with his father, Lo and behold, lo and behold, he was able at 18 to go to college. And I remember getting getting a letter from him five years later that he was happily married, uh, he had children, and he was happily employed and had never had another issue with the law. And by going to therapy, he could understand that he was taking this behavior out on other women because of what he felt that he had been abandoned by his mother. So he was doing a violence, so to speak, to, to other women that was a substitute for mother. And it was all because we had that ability of various programs. The difference that we have had a recognition is, is that most citizens are not able to afford these things. So we are able that there are many foundations now and many corporations that are putting money toward these programs, just like my minor, that we were able to put him into things that had, we call them sliding scale. He couldn't afford three, the family couldn't afford $300 an hour, but they could certainly afford $10 an hour, and he got the same treatment as if he was a wealthy individual. And it worked. It worked. And I, and I feel so, so wonderful about it. But that was just one of many examples that I could tell you. Well, Alan, that's that's just great. And I can tell you, I was on a formal probation violation calendar where I received reports from probation about how these various people were doing. And they'd come back to my courtroom, and if they had three stars, basically they're kind of treading water. Uh, they're going to get through it. But if they had four stars, that meant they were taking it seriously. But if they had five stars, that meant not only they were taking it seriously, but they were helping their colleagues take it seriously as well. And I had the procedure that anyone that got five stars, I would get down off the bench in my robe and shake their hand and congratulate them. And I actually had two kind of maybe mid-30s men uh, in, in, separately break into tears saying, Your Honor, I've never had any male, any man in my life ever congratulate me for anything. You, 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 you recommend that they can do better. Sometimes I'd have to put them in jail and the rest, but I'd say, oh, I know, Mr. Jones, you can do better. I'm sorry to have to do this, but I'm in the responsibility business and you're responsible for your actions, but I know you can do better. It's mentoring. It's showing people the alternatives, the possibilities. And I'll give you one more example that when I was a federal prosecutor, my first drug court case, or drug case that I tried, uh, there was a DEA agent who was from South Central Los Angeles, and he said, you know, this was coming up for the final undercover buy, and he looked over and saw that this, here was a guy that he grew up in high school with, and he immediately called in someone else to make the buy because he knew that this guy would know him and it would, it would mess up the offense, but he told me, look, this guy was a friend of mine in high school, I was mentored by my basketball coach, he was mentored by a drug dealer, and barefoot, but for the grace of God, with the 
revolves, the, the roles could have been reversed. Mentoring makes huge differences, so don't bring them into the criminal justice system unless you really need to, and if you do, help them address their issues. Have a smorgasbord of, of various things. Anytime someone comes into the criminal justice system, or at least the juvenile, saying, try test them for eyeglasses, test them for dyslexia, try to figure out what these problems are. So we're going to talk a little bit more about these and the beneficial things through the criminal justice system, particularly in juvenile, but otherwise, uh, when we come back after this word. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. And the song that you're hearing is the theme song for All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Actually, comes from my musical. It's called Americans All, and I'm proud of it. It's basically used for high school uh, singers and, and actors to take on the road to help mentor uh, high school and junior high school students. So Americans All, Americans All, we are Americans All. It's, it, but it's strengthened by bonds that help us stand tall. We are Americans All. I'm proud of this, but mentoring is clearly important. And Alan Gravaro, who's my guest, a former longtime public defender, uh, would talk about being able to find what it was that was causing problems in people's lives, particularly juveniles, and addressing those problems. And a lot of people originally thought, oh, that's just a bleeding heart liberal sort of thing. You know, I'm as law and order as it gets. Uh, fairly conservative judge in a conservative county, but the idea is to find out what these problems are, insist on accountability, but help folks address their various problems. I heard that there were a few people who were dyslexic, 
what happens, you know, you can't tell your right from your left and, and uh, you have some difficulties there uh, and you transpose numbers, you transpose thoughts. So what happens is you start sitting in the back of your classroom and then, of course, because you, you feel that you're not doing well, then you start causing disruptions, you get suspended, you get involved in, in various crimes, etc. But if you're just diagnosed, if someone comes up to you and says, look, you know, in fact, I met a judge one time that was dyslexic, but he could have a ring on his left finger so he could always look down and see, well, my left finger has the ring on it, so that's my left side. But he could address these various issues. He wasn't a criminal. He wasn't dumb. But just figuring out what the problem was helped him to where he was then, and it will help lots of people. This is what Alan Corvaro has done. And in fact, Alan, I'm sure you'll remember this, but we had something called peer court in Orange County where we would actually have real criminal justice delinquency issues. And it wouldn't be major, but it also wouldn't just be jaywalking. And we would find that if they were appropriate, we would bring them into a high school outside their district, would impanel a high school jurors who would ask questions, both of the subject as well as his or her parents. And, uh, we would be able to, to address these various things. And so the, the parents found out by the questions asked by their, their child's peers that they weren't meant to be their child's friends. They were meant to be their parent. So they, kids expect parents to parent was sometimes a revelation for kids. But we would not only get to the subject and you'd ask them, well, what do you want your life to look like 10 years from now? And, of course, we all know, the, we oldsters know that 10 years will go by pretty quickly. But for a 16-year-old, for a it's an eternity. But start focusing on this now. Uh, indeed, I'll tell you, show you your friends, you show me your future is also kind of with that. But, Alan, you've been involved with our peer court and have experience with it. Uh, has that been your experience as well? Oh yes, yes. I'm happy to I'm happy to, to report that Peer Court in our county, the one that you instigated, couldn't be stronger. Uh, it receives referrals from law enforcement, from the high schools, from the probation department, and it has a twofold benefit. Number one, for those students that participate and get to view it, they are learning how to be good jurors, something that hopefully in the future they'll be called upon as a citizens to do in real court. Secondly, for those students that are asking the person, the accused, the questions, they are able to get to the bottom of it in a way that an adult was. Um, they understand, for instance, it's not uncommon in peer court that a, a minor would, would, would be asked to be caught smoking marijuana on a high school campus. Um, even though it's de minimis now in California, it's still something that you're not saying. You, under California law, it's not lawful if you're under the age of 21. <clears throat> Plus, there can be school discipline. Classic question will be a student will realize, say, besides smoking it, Tell us the truth. Haven't you been selling it or giving it away to others to support your habit of smoking marijuana? The answer inevitably would always be yes, and it's something that we adults would never think of. So the kids their own age understand what it's like to be in that context. They're asking the right questions, and the jury that is elected to go in the back and formulate a restorative plan within the confines of reason and the law um, are able to do so very effectively. And we have found that the recidivism rate is tremendous. 
I should say that the lack of recidivism is tremendous. That is better. Um, the peer court is tremendously effective and is something that has caught fire not only in the state of California, almost every county, major metropolitan county in California has it, but it is also a national movement. And they all are a variation a little bit about the way we do things in Orange County, but it's extremely effective. Well, if there's any, any of our listeners, if you have contacts, you'd like to start a peer court in your community, a const, contact the Constitutional Rights uh, Foundation of Orange County, and you can find them in the web. Or if you want to contact me directly, go to judgejimgray.com, and you'll, there, you can get my email address, which is also jimpgray at sbcglobal.net. And uh, we can give you information on how you can start a peer court in your own community. Alan Cravaro, you have another experience as well with the CRF, the Constitutional Rights Foundation, and that is their annual mock trials where they actually have, and this is a national uh, movement, where they give you a scenario and then you actually put on real, put on high school witnesses, they're, they're questioned by high school uh, prosecutors, defense attorneys, and the rest, and they have, they have mentors, they have people that, that help help them prepare. Uh, you had one one time while you were still in the public defender's office that you came from juvenile hall and you called them, I can't remember what high school is the name of their facility, but uh, you mentored them and helped them actually participate uh, in mainstream type work of, of mock trial. Uh, I actually was designated to be the judge there and they did a marvelous job and I commended them. And um, sometimes then afterwards, uh, some of your folks there from your high school would talk to the other people's high school and say, well, you know, I have experience on what happens in the criminal justice system where they, they really did. <laughs> but you also told me that the first couple of of uh, times when they were actually brought by a bus to the courthouse, to the public defender's office to begin their preparations, you deemed it to be a real victory if you could just get them to wear their blue jeans above their waist. Uh, but at any rate, <laughs> tell us a little bit about your experience with, with what happened with, and what was the name again that you called that school? Uh, we had a couple of them. One was Otto Fisher, which is actually the name of the uh, the school that they have inside of the juvenile hall. And basically what happened was is uh, I had always been interested in juvenile justice since a very early days as a young public defender <clears throat> and always used to visit when we had juvenile camps and that type of stuff. And I learned very early on when I saw the interaction between kids that were constantly involved in the juvenile system and the bailiffs and the court system that if you treated those young people as criminals, they would respond as criminals. They weren't really criminals. They weren't born that way. It was the only, this is the attention that they were receiving. So when we decided to, to do our mock trial program, myself and a couple of other colleagues set out and we said, we're going to treat them and demand of them that they respond as if they were not in custody and the fact that they are regular high school students. And we will demand of them in the same way. We will work with them as educational mentors. And I am telling you that in a very short time, they responded. And that was the secret. People, people used to, you know, I got, I got teased by other people, uh, friends that are in the district attorney's office or other lawyers about, well, of course those kids are going to do better because they've all been involved with the, they know about crimes and criminal justice system. The truth is, is that's baloney. 
They didn't know any more. They only knew what it looked like, the inside of a courtroom and inside of a cell. They didn't know what was going on. They were represented by lawyers. They didn't pay attention. This was just their, 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 their life, you know. One stop on the way to where the rest of their relatives were, they believed, in a state prison. This was their life. They accepted it. This was uh, their peer group. We broke that chain very quickly. Their parents came back simply by seeing their sons and daughters respond in a fashion that they'd never seen before. The parents didn't realize that they were part of the problem. But nonetheless, again, by treating them as regular individuals, working with them, showing interest, and not tolerating the, the um, so to speak, asocial behavior um, that, a, that a typical delinquent might have, this, this was very productive, and we have still been doing it, and now we must be 25 years later. Um, but it's still working that way. Nobody in the courtroom, when they compete against high school, know that they are actually uh, either incarcerated at a camp or from juvenile hall. They're all dressed like uh, in their little suits and coats that we got them. They look formal. They have the same courtesy. And the other high school students don't know what Otto Fisher is, and they treat them as if they were normal. We have seen that the students that are participating in our mock trial program, just like the kids in shortstop, just like peer court, that reduces recidivism, and on they go. No one had ever showed them that they can learn. I observed at the camps that the, particularly the boys were extremely good at organized sports. In other words, one of the one of the classics of criminal behavior is this asocial behavior is an individual is always out for himself. Here I watched them on the basketball court, and they were absolutely annihilating other teams um, because they worked so well as a team. This is what gave me the idea with mock trial because there are multiple lawyers, multiple witnesses, and they have to work together as a team. So I thought, you know, if I can move them from the physical to the mental and still build a team like this, this is something that they know how to do. Isn't that exactly what we demand of our fellow citizens in a community, that we work as a team, we watch out for each other, we have empathy towards one another? These are all the things that they were doing when they were a basketball team, now they were a mock trial team, and now they will be citizens out. They learned how to work with others instead of putting themselves above and beyond by themselves. And that was one of the beauties of the mock trial team, and I'm so proud of it when I see my, my former office do this every year again and watch kids with success go through it, watch them become self-motivated because no one ever told them, yes, you have a good mind. You can read and write and be creative. You can do things um, for yourself, you know? No, absolutely, hey, Alan. You don't need Alan to get attention Favaro. by being asocial. Yeah. Take a bow because, you know, you on behalf of us all, you, you have worked with them and you've diverted them. I, I, I was in juvenile court for a while, and you see that if you lose them on the abused and neglected children calendar, then they will graduate into juvenile delinquency. You lose them there without getting mentoring and showing them that, hey, you can, you can succeed. You can have benefits here. You'll lose them into municipal court committing misdemeanor 
misdemeanors as adults and then felonies. They're, they're likely to end up in prison, but you can break that st- cycle. So it, you, you avoid that, what I call, curse of low expectations. No, you give them the blessing of high expectations. You too can do this, and, and that's what you've been doing there, and just, just congratulations and thank you for that. Alan, with, the, with a few minutes remaining, I'm going to discuss change the subject again in the criminal justice system. I, we said earlier that it is simply wrong, an abuse of power, to punish someone before they're convicted, and that means that you should not arrest people. I mentioned this before the arrest was done in my name, but I wrote an article recently in the Los Angeles Daily Journal, which, as you know, is a statewide wide publication in California for the criminal justice professional the attorneys and about Roger Stone's arrest and actually I'm not necessarily a fan of Roger Stone but he was arrested at gunpoint after this Mueller report etc and without getting at all into the the credibility there but he was arrested at gunpoint by the FBI early in the morning with a helicopter overhead and taken to jail and for heaven's sake you don't do that unless people are seen as either being a threat to society, you know, physical or, or bribing witnesses or something, or is going to flee. So I took that one because it was well known saying that that was an abuse of authority. But I swear to you, and you've probably seen this as well, that it happens almost daily if you are in the lower economic groups where you cannot support and defend yourself frequently people of color. And, and this is an atrocity that I believe is an, a, a violence to our system, and we have to call attention to it, not to allow this to happen unless it's necessary. Have you experienced that as well? Yes. Yes, it does happen. Uh, more likely than not, the wealthy know that law enforcement is investigating them. They usually lawyer up, the lawyer contacts law enforcement or the district attorney's office, and they let everybody know, if you're going to file a criminal charge, call me up. I will voluntarily submit the client to court. When you, when you are a poor person, you don't have those resources. And so law enforcement, although they have to have probable cause in our state and a sign-off by a judge, are more likely that they're going to be, as we call it, the perp walk. They're going to be taken into custody. They're going to be displayed in front of the press if it's a high-profile case and taken to jail. Worse than that, until the system changes, they're not going to be able to make bail unlike the rich person who has the money to bail out. So they're going to sit in custody sometimes for as much as a year if it's a very, very serious crime that legitimately takes that long for the defense counsel to work through. So those are some of the inequities simply based on someone's finances. And they tend to go with the lower socioeconomic groups. Well, like you say, Alan Cravaro, there is a movement now to reform or change the bail system and make it based upon whether you're a threat to society, whether you're going to show up for trial, and not how much money you have. Because obviously, if you're in jail, even for 30 days, you're probably going to lose your job, your family is going to be hurting. So you have a ridiculous incentive to plead guilty, even if you're not really guilty of that offense, because you've got to get back to work. You've got to got to keep supporting your family. So this is a bulwark that we simply must look at. Uh, 
it says in our Constitution, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, equal opportunity for all, not equal results. It's up to you to gain your results, but you should have, regardless of your place in our world, should have an equal opportunity to be successful. You should have equal justice and protections under the law. You should have an attorney. You'll be blessed if you have someone like Alan Gravaro, but there are a lot of very good people out there in public defender's offices and, and elsewhere in which you can get that justice for all. We strive for it. We make the system work. And as I say in my show, uh, Americans All, uh, justice for all is our foremost creed and liberty is our cry. With opportunity as the key for us or education, our successes will multiply. We owe it to our people to give them that opportunity. The mentoring, the yes, you can do it, the responsibility our children, everyone is craving to have responsibility and know where they can perform within it. So there you have it. Again, another segment in All Rise. Uh, we can all rise together if we have that opportunity, if we have that equal justice. So Alan Cravaro from the Public Defender's Office, a marvelous citizen of our world, marvelous patriot. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for what you do. It's been inspiring. And again, I appreciate it. I know we all do, all of our listeners here on All Rise, because we will all rise together. Talk to you again soon for another segment. In the meantime, this is Judge Jim Gray saying, life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us control.